Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Because Jesus is talking today to each and every one of us about the reality of true blessedness, true happiness, radically blessed. That's what he wants us to be and what he wants us to experience and what he wants us to share. Let's face it, there are not very many people on this planet whose primary focus in life is not the pursuit of their own happiness. Let's listen in as we study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where our Lord tells us the truth about the pursuit of happiness. Let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. We've entitled the message, Radically Blessed. As the ushers are bringing Bibles around, let me ask you a couple questions. How many of you have any idea how much it costs to have a commercial today during the Super Bowl? I read 2.2 million. Does that sound accurate? And there are going to be 61 commercials for 2.2 million. Now, I'm not a cynic, but I am a skeptic. And I'm thinking, if it costs more than a million bucks to tell you something, it's probably not going to be true. (laughs) You see, if you've got good news, if you go to a restaurant and it's great, you don't charge your friends to tell them about it. You just say, hey, man, we had this great food, great atmosphere. Let's go back to this place. And I'm thinking, and I'm not picking on the beer advertisers, though I worked for a couple years for Anheuser-Busch. Uh, in the music realm there at Bush Gardens. But, but I'm thinking the very fact that they're saying, this is what life's all about, man. Just got to get this beer. Or somebody says, you got to drive this SUV or somebody else, you got to have this. I have a sneaking suspicion that they're messing with us. And I'd like to suggest we couldn't be in a more perfect passage, a more wonderful section of Scripture Because Jesus is talking today to each and every one of us about the reality of true blessedness, true happiness, radically blessed. That's what he wants us to be and what he wants us to experience and what he wants us to share. Well, in any case, let me ask you a couple questions. What comes to mind when you think or hear the words radically blessed. Now, I don't want the the sanitized Christian right answer. It's not Sunday school. And if you say, well, oh, my family or going to church, and like I believe that too. But let's pretend we're not in church for just a moment. We're at some seminar somewhere and they're saying, what do you want? What will make you happy? And and what they really mean by that is what can we do to get you to sign up and do this thing, see? I I would suggest to you, well, I could wait for some answers, that uh, in order to be blessed, in order to be happy, in order to be content, in order to be fulfilled, if you're a student, you'd probably fill in the blank. Well, that diploma, that graduation, or perhaps even the job that you're hoping or eagerly anticipating will follow. If you're already in the workforce, it's going to be 
Let's see, what would make me happy? What would make me get a raise, a promotion, a bigger office, seeing my boss get fired? We all have something. Maybe it's, I get to sing that song, take this job and, well, you know the song. But if, in fact, you've graduated, you have your diploma, you've gotten the job, you've worked your way up the ladder, you, like most people, have probably discovered, probably, probably, yeah, but anyway, you've probably discovered that, that it really, it's not all you had hoped or expected. I'm not saying we shouldn't work. We should. I'm not saying we shouldn't go after the things that we need to take care of our families and provide for them. No, we need to do that too. But if you have this expectation that joy and happiness and contentment are just around the corner, at that next purchase, if you've been doing this a while, if you're over 30 as I am, um, Okay, over 50 as I am. <laughs> you probably would say happiness is about a new something. You know, a new car, a new job, a new house, a new bike, a new boat, a new something. But Jesus says happiness is about godly character. It's about first knowing the God who made you and then yielding yourself to that experience of being transformed into someone just like him, being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. And as we look at our passage today, we're going to see some things that you definitely will not hear today in any advertisement during the Super Bowl, nor will you hear it in any advertisement at any point. Why? Because the very need to advertise and promote suggests there's going to be a letdown. It is going to fail to achieve what it promises. But here's the great news. God is faithful to his word. And when he says this is where blessedness is, this is what happiness is about, if you believe it, buy into it, act upon it, you're going to be radically blessed. You're going to be truly happy. Something that all the world is seeking after and striving for. Now, you should know the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest recorded sermon, at least recorded in Matthew's Gospel. It is some of the most profound teaching ever recorded by anyone. And, and we get a context both in the end and, and in the conclusion of these three chapters. It begins with these words there in chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, it concludes with the people being amazed at his teaching because he speaks with authority and not as the scribes, the religious teachers of that day. So seeing the multitudes, we read, he went up on a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. This sets the scene. Jesus is looking at the multitudes. And you know that when he sees the multitudes, he has compassion on them. He sees them as weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And so this is his plan to provide for and reach and meet the real needs of those hungry, hurting multitudes. He draws his disciples to him. Now, some have suggested he was speaking only to the disciples. While I do think they were his primary audience, it's clear from the end of the Sermon on the Mount that others were listening in. And here's the picture I get. 
Anyone who was really interested could draw in closer. They, they could be on the outskirts just sort of hanging out and saying, man, beautiful day and look how cool the water looks. It's glassy and hey, listen, something's going on up the hill there. But if you were interested, you wouldn't just hear someone speaking at a distance. You could draw closer in. And that's the picture we get. Jesus, as all teachers did in his day, sat when he taught. That's not why I sit, by the way. I sit because I find that it's easier for me to relax, to slow down. You're all sitting. I want to feel like we're kind of hanging together, even though it's mostly a lecture. I don't want it to feel like or really be a lecture. I want to just be in the word with you and discovering things as you do. And so I sit because when I stand, I speak faster. And if you're thinking, man, this is already kind of quick. You got to listen to the tapes of 10 years ago. It's like, it's like insane. I listen. I'm thinking, what was I on? I mean, what was going on? What was I thinking? But in any case, here as we see the context, Jesus, a heart for the multitudes, a message for the multitudes. We're told that he taught them. This was how he was going to meet the needs through the teaching of the truth of his holy word. And he was going to meet real needs, the ultimate needs of life, the, the most important needs of life. Now, one last thing, and we'll look at these first few verses together. Any builder knows he needs to lay a solid foundation. If you don't lay a good foundation, well, the house you build or the building you build, well, it's going to crumble and fall. It's never going to stand the test of time or the elements, the trials, the things that come. And so it is spiritually. Jesus knows we need a firm and solid foundation. And that's really what he provides for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And especially in these first 12 verses, he lays out for us what we must be if we're going to experience all he's intended for us. If we're going to be fruitful for him and faithful for him, he doesn't start with what we must do, but what we must be, our character. Next week, we'll look at the influence that we have in the world around us. And then we'll begin to look at how we relate to God and to our fellow man. But in any case, he begins with this word blessed. It literally can be translated and is in some of your versions of scripture. Oh, how happy. It speaks of an abiding sense of contentment and peace and joy. And, and like, man, this just couldn't get any better than this. And I personally am interested in those kinds of blessings, having spent so much of my life pursuing things that let me down, thinking that if I get this or do this or accomplish that or deal with this, then I'll find peace. Then I'll be. No, it never happens. And so he begins by saying, blessed are. Now, the blessedness he first speaks of, especially in these first three blessings, are the direct result of recognizing his presence personally and his holiness personally. And here's what happens. When I realize that God is for me and not against me, when I stand before him, not thinking, hey, I've got something to offer him or in some way could please him, but, but I recognize that I am poor spiritually. And that's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
He's talking about a poverty of spirit that recognizes I have no righteousness of my own. I can't stand before God boasting in what I've done or what I am or the wonderful deal he got when he got me. No, we know if in fact you're a believer, you know, as I do, that we got the deal. Man, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Talk about poverty of spirit. There was nothing we could do to change our situation except trust in the one who offered us pardon and forgiveness. But before that happens, we have to come to a place, a point of absolute abject humility before him. And that's what he means by poor in spirit. The word for poor doesn't just mean someone struggling. It is used in practical, physical ways of somebody who is absolutely destitute, bankrupt. Their best they could hope for would be to beg. And, uh, and that's the picture he wants us to see. When it comes to the spiritual realities, apart from the righteousness he imputes, and we'll talk about righteousness, but the rightness, that's the easiest way to understand that word. Apart from the righteousness and the rightness he imparts and he imputes, we are absolutely spiritually bankrupt. And when we recognize that, he says, hey, there's a real blessing because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Isaiah realized he was in the presence of God and the king, in the year King Uzziah died, he, he writes in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and the angels cried holy. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me. He recognized and was humbled by the fact that, man, here he is in the presence of God Almighty, the Holy One. And he said, woe is me. When Peter first realized that Jesus was more than a wonderful teacher and a miracle worker and maybe even one who would deal with some of their problems politically as they were oppressed by the Romans, as Jesus works miraculously and, and Peter sort of has his eyes open, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. That's what always happens in Scripture when people recognize who the Lord is and his holiness. There is this sense of, man, woe is me, depart from me. Now, in contrast to that, and so we can get the picture, Jesus later gives us a parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, we're told, went up and, and prayed with himself, probably really prayed to himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Not a bad start if you're really giving God the glory. But he says, I, I'm, thank you, I'm not like other men, even like these unjust extortioners. And he compares himself and always favorably. And then he says, I fast and I tithe and I, I, I. But the publican, the tax collector, we're told, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but, but smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the picture that, that Jesus wants us to have in our minds when we read, blessed are the poor in spirit. And here's the deal. He says, which of those two went home justified? The word is akin to our word righteous, which went home right with the Lord. Hey, it's not going to be the one who says, hey, thank God I'm not like other people, giving himself the glory and the credit for it. And here's how you can tell which category you would fall in today. 
If you're even a little self-righteous, even if you're a little haughty and proud, if you look on others and, and you have an arrogant attitude, you consider yourself better than them, you need to know, better off, never better than. And if you're better off, even God, well, God deserves the glory even for that. And so this blessedness, this happiness, this abiding contentment is the direct result of an encounter with God that brings us to our knees before him and cries, causes us to cry out, woe is me and depart from me. Because here's the good news. He's not gonna. He won't depart and it isn't woe. He says, no, that's the beginning. That's, that's the first part of the foundation necessary for building and, and being right with God. Theirs, he says, is the kingdom of heaven in a real way. Citizens now and heirs too the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This simply speaks to us about recognizing my own depravity, my own sin, the the desperateness of my situation, and beginning to mourn over it. When I realize I have no righteousness of my own, when I realize sin's damage and devastation, when I recognize that the sorrow and suffering, not just that I've experienced, that others have experienced because of my sin, it causes me to mourn. And when I see Jesus crucified and hear those words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, it really causes me to grieve. And God says at that moment, hey, blessed are you who mourn, blessed are you who grieve not just because you got a hard life or you've had some hard knocks, but because you realize your spiritual depravity and you mourn and grieve over the, the sin and the suffering and the sorrow, the death that sin brings. It was used, by the way, this word for mourning of those who grieved in the Old Testament over sin, over sorrow, over death. But in a real way, not just physically, but spiritually, he's saying this will be the result of seeing ourselves as God sees us with no righteousness of our own, with nothing with which we could stand before him. It causes us to grieve and here's his promise. They shall be comforted. When I grieve for my sin, when I confess my depravity, when I ask forgiveness, he not only forgives but comforts me. Not only forgives, but comforts me. Then he says, blessed are the meek. And I think I already mentioned it. You're never going to get this kind of teaching anywhere outside the Bible. It just doesn't exist. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. And I want you to see there's this beautiful progression developing as we See the poverty of spirit as we're humbled by it, as we mourn as a result of it. And that brings a true meekness and humility before God and man. He says once again, hey, that is a state of blessedness. Now, Moses had this experience called by God, separated to God. He had a desire to serve God and and he went out at one point in his own flesh and he tried to do the work that he thought God had called him to. You know, be a mediator among men. He didn't really get it right. He actually killed a guy. It was never God's plan. So, so Moses ends up spending 40 years 
for those of you who've been working on your degree for four, six, eight, you know, whatever it's been, here's, here's some hope. Moses spent 40 years getting his degree. It was a BD, back of the desert degree. And uh, he, he took all that time to just learn that he couldn't do on his own and in and of himself what only God could really accomplish in and through him. And so first 40 years in Egypt, then 40 in the, the back of the desert. And then he comes when he's 80 years old and he's kind of burnt out. And he's like, Lord, I don't, I'm not really much of a talker. I'm not really looking for a job right now. I'm tending sheep. Couldn't you get somebody else? And you just got to read the story. It's amazing. But after God uses Moses mightily, we get this testimony. Moses was the meekest man that ever lived. Now, if it weren't for my great respect for Scripture and, and its integrity, I'd have problems with that statement. And here's why. Moses is the one who said it, you see. And uh, when anybody says, hey, here I am, meekest man who ever lived, you got to wonder about the guy. But it was a true testimony, at least up to the point when Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Man, if you're working hard, laboring for the Lord, trying to do the right thing, and and you're just burning out and bummed out, overwhelmed, he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. In the first case, just come, he says, and I'll give you rest. And then he says, yoke yourself together with me, learn of me and, and, and I'll give you rest again. Here's the picture. Nothing could be more frustrating than trying to do the work of the Spirit in the energies of our flesh. If you want to fail, I guarantee you will. Try to do God's thing your way or with your energies or your plans. It is a prescription for failure. But when he says, yoke with me, hey, first of all, if you're yoked, you're not going to get far from him. That's a good thing. And if you're yoked, you're going to be working alongside of him. That's a wonderful thing. And if you're yoked and not getting far from and working alongside, there is going to be abundant fruit from your life because Jesus never plows in vain. He never plants in vain. He is always working and he's always accomplishing what he's seeking to accomplish. So so here's the picture. I, I realize God's present and I realize God's holy and it breaks me. I experience that poverty of spirit that that causes me to mourn over what I am apart from him. And that brings me to a true meekness. Now, if you're confused about meekness, because many of us associate meekness with weakness, you need to know the word cannot mean that and never did and never will. It's actually a word that would describe power under control. That's our Lord. I mean, they spit in his face and plucked out his beard and, and nailed him to a cross. And at any point, hey, he could have called legions of angels down to just destroy them. But he submitted himself to the cross for your sins and mine. He had all power, but he wasn't going to use it, as we saw in his temptation, for his own protection or provision or, or any of that. No, he was only going to do what the Father sent him to do. The, the best picture I can give you apart from the cross and nothing can come close to that what would be the picture of an unbroken horse. 
I don't know if you've ever seen wild horses. We used to live on Bruce Road before all those houses were built. There were hundreds of horses running wild out there. And, and man, it is wonderful to just see the, the power of those horses free and running wild. But a free and, and wild horse, while it may be powerful, isn't very useful. And the picture we get in meekness is, is a broken horse. Now, when you break a horse, you don't diminish its power at all. What you do is, is you focus that power so that the horse is now useful and productive. And that's exactly what God wants to do with us. He wants to take anything and everything he's already birthed in us and planted in us and, and all the potential of our lives. And he just wants it under his control so that we'll be useful and, and fruitful to him. If you are new to the faith or the study of scripture, you should start to see that Jesus' teachings are counterintuitive to almost everything that the world has already taught us to think and believe. And this is when you realize the way of the world is not the way of Jesus Christ, and you face a decision. Which path are you going to choose? Join us next time for the conclusion of Radically Blessed. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.